0: God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. from Zimbabwe. Thanks for always listening to my prayers. I know you hear me and I know you love me. We don't have much and life can be very difficult where we live. But I want to thank you for helping my mom and me. brought One Child Matters into our community a few years ago. It changed everything. They gave me food, good clothes to wear, and they helped me in school. When I am there, I learn more about you, that you love me, and that you have a special purpose for my life. I'm learning so much, and now I have so many friends. I am no longer shy or afraid. But the best thing of all is that you gave me a sponsor in America that loves me. She even sends me pictures of her and her family. And I love reading her letters. They always make me smile. She cares for me and my mom and she's always praying for us. She may live very far away, but she is always in my heart. I love her. Today I sent a letter to her and included a drawing of my plane. It is so fast and can fly very far. And this is good, because one day I want to be a pilot so that I can play all the One Child Matters children with me to meet our sponsors. We want to tell them thank you and show them they are changing the world. Please God, can you help my dream come true? I love
1: you, Lionel. Wow, I love that video. Love that, Lionel from Zimbabwe. I uh, I'm so honored to have all of you here for the next few days. I'm Pastor Brady. I'm this pastor here at New Life and. Uh, One of the sponsors, the key sponsor for us this year is One Child Matters. And we take it pretty serious who we partner with. In other words, it's not a bidding war, it's a relationship. And we want people that we know and respect and love and care for to be a part of this conference. And today, tonight, I want to introduce you to the Vice President of One Child Matters, Michael Calhoun. Michael, will you come on up, Michael. We welcome him right now to the stage with me. Michael. So I appreciate you. One of the things that I love about Michael, number one, he's a member of my church, our church, and uh, so I keep an eye on him pretty close. He is uh, an ORU grad. Uh, so any ORU grads in the, uh, in the house? Half my go. staff is ORU grads. But Michael, this, converse, this uh, conference is about conversations, about dialogue, about questions and answers, about um, asking good questions and hearing thoughtful answers. So you're sitting in front of pastors and leaders from around the country. You represent a a ministry called One Child Matters that helps the local church engage in areas around the world, including Zimbabwe, but around the world. So what kind of conversations do you want to have this week with pastors and leaders? What, What can you do to help us as church leaders, pastors, engage our congregations into places like this community that we just saw, Lionel from Zimbabwe. I want you to take me there, by the way. I need to meet Lionel. I <laughs> want to meet him me. next week. <laughs> but what, what, kind of, what kind of conversations do you want to have this week?
0: Well, you know, it's, it's an honor to be with you all. It's an honor to be a part of this. And, and uh, you know, really, that's the beautiful thing about that story. And the reason why you got to meet Lionel is because God's put a really cool dream in Lionel's heart. And God's put a dream in all of our hearts as leaders in everything that you guys are called to do, there's a dream in your heart, and really that's the conversation we wanna have. That's, the, that's why we're here, because we believe in the vision and the dream that God has put in your heart to make a difference, to, to reach out to the hurt and the broken, it, broken in your communities, and to, to, to really make right what is wrong, to change the world. And so that's the conversation we wanna have this week, is how, what, what's, what's the dream that's in your heart, and how can we come alongside that And and make stories like
1: Lionel's a part of that. Well, I know as a pastor how difficult it is to mobilize uh, a church, small or large. It doesn't matter the size of your congregation. It's hard to find trusted partners in in countries. It's hard to know how to get there, who to talk to. It's hard to know what the real need is once you get there. And this is what One Child Matters does. They cut through a lot of the confusion, a lot of the clouds that are swirling around global work right now. And Michael travels the world. His team travels the world. And so they can take you and your team, small church, medium church, large churches, they can take your teams and put you on site with a community that has real needs and and places where it's not just a one-time trip where you get a T-shirt and take a few photos. (laughs) Those are fine, but this is not what One Child Matters is about. They're about community engagement, about living there, being a part of the long-term solutions in these, in, in these communities like Lionel's. Yeah. And so, Michael, uh, we're so grateful for what you do. Michael uh, is going to be here all week. Yeah. One Child Matters is a key keynote sponsor for us. And uh, I'm, not, I'm, I'm saying this sincerely. I've spent a lot of time with Michael. You can trust this guy. Uh, you, he will answer your questions. He'll work hard with your church. And I want you to all uh, make a point this week to go by and have a conversation with him. Will you do that? All right? Absolutely. Michael. Thank you. God bless you. Thanks. Pete. Thank you, Michael. All right. Well, I just want to say once again, welcome to Colorado. Come on. And this is great Great to be in Colorado. How many non-Coloradans? You don't live here. Maybe you're funny, If you don't live in Colorado, raise your hand. Welcome to my state, to the 719. We're so glad to have you for the next two and a half days. The weather here is always just like this. Every day is just like this. No, this is actually the, my favorite time of the year to be in Colorado, and this is one of the reasons we have the conference the last week of September, because it's peak foliage time. I'm a little concerned, though, because some, you know if you go up in the mountains and see how beautiful it is right now, you may not come back to the conference. So I do that at, before or after the conference, but I hope every year what you would like to do is come here with your spouse or with your team, come a few days early, or, or maybe choose to stay a few days late and go up in the mountains. I'm telling you, if you've never seen the Aspens at full peak, you need to see them at least once in your life. And uh, I promise if you go once, you'll want to go every year, right? So uh, we're glad to have you. Uh, I want to talk to you just for a minute or so about what you're going to expect for the next three days. We made a decision last year, and I really feel uh, the Lord spoke to us, spoke to me, and spoke to our team about this conference that we uh we're going to be at conference every year that is committed to having real conversations a dialogue uh, a conversation with church leaders and so we capped off the conference at 500 people We, we we're over 500 in the room today but around 500 people is what we felt was a good number that we could have honest, uh, thoughtful conversations around a table where it wouldn't feel gigantic, it wouldn't feel large. You know, uh, we, we go to a lot of those conferences, we speak at those, but we felt that there was this gap in the conference world for real, substantial conversations with people who love and practice local church ministry. And we all uh, at New Life, we love our job as pastors and leaders of the local church. We're committed to it. That's what we are consumed with. We think about church all the time. And so we want to be around people that share our passions, that really want to have these thoughtful dialogues. And so you're sitting at a table. You're not in a big arena. uh, We're going to have tons of opportunities to have back-and-forth conversation throughout the week. I hope it feels like a conversation to you, and I hope you leave here this week really filled up full and really full of what God has for you. So tonight, I want to share just with you for a few minutes a message out of the book of Nehemiah. And I want you to open your Bibles up there to Nehemiah. The, the, uh, the, the, the theme of this year's conference as we were praying about it, the Lord kept giving us these two words, faithful presence, faithful presence, faithful presence. And it, it was really found in, in the 51st Psalm create in us a steadfast heart, renew a right spirit within us, create in us a steadfastness, just the ability to stay steady. And so we, we chose that about a year ago. A group of us were praying, and the Lord just seemed to speak that into our, all of us. And, and then in the last 12 months, I have watched, we, we have watched pastors from around the country, some high-profile pastors, some men and women you may have never heard of, others we all know, have resigned or been fired or fallen out of ministry. Just in the last five months, I have watched these heartbreaking stories unfold in front of us for various reasons, burnout or for substance abuse or for just uh, poor behavior and just a myriad of, of, of things that are happening in pastors' hearts that are causing leaders to fall away. So I stand here tonight uh, wanting to draw a line in the sand with you I'm here tonight to expose some lies of the enemy. And my goal is that we stand here next year together and we don't have any casualties among us. And that's an audacious goal. That's a pretty bold goal. But I'm going to tell you something. I, I have prayed over this meeting tonight, that tonight that there will be some of you sitting in this room. And if God does not, and I'm not trying to overstate this, and I'm not trying to use hyperbole, or to cause some kind of uh, emotion that's not there, but I'm telling you tonight, if some of you do not pay attention to what God is doing in your heart tonight, you won't be here in, in, in your role this time next year. I'm saying this about myself. If I do not pay attention to the schemes and the plans of the enemy for my life, I very well may not be here next year. All of us are targets. All of us are out in the open. All of us have this bullseye on our lives. And the enemy would like nothing more than to take us out. The enemy would like nothing more than to to trip us up, to cause us to stumble along the way. And I want to tell you the story uh, about a man named Nehemiah, a very familiar story. I'm sure you've all taught these passages of Scripture, these passages But Nehemiah uh, was an unusual guy. Nehemiah was kind of going about his work, kind of doing his thing, kind of uh, really behaving himself, doing his job. And then suddenly, in a moment, he kind of really, in my mind, he overheard something. He heard a report. Let me read this to you. This is Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. I'm going to use this because I, I want to get it right. Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 3. It says, They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Now I want you to look at verse 4. He says, When I heard these things. So he's just, I think he just kind of heard a conversation. I just think Nehemiah was... Kind of involved in some kind of uh, probably just walking through the temple courts or walking through the palace somewhere, and he heard these officials, these people of high rank, talking about this place called Jerusalem. And he says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. Now, I want to stop here just for a moment because I want to point out something. Everybody, we've planted in the last seven years, we've planted five churches in the, in, across the United States. We partner with the Ark to plant hundreds more. We partner with international organizations to plant thousands of more. We're church planters. In the conversation that I have with young church planters that are on my staff or are part of my team somehow, one of the conversations I have, when they come to me, they say, Pastor Brady, I want to plant a church, and they'll name a place. They'll name a city. They'll name some locale. Some, maybe it's their hometown. Maybe it's not. And I always go back and remember this passage of Scripture. I remember a time when the Lord Spoke to me about coming to Colorado Springs. I'll never forget it. It's burned in my heart a Friday morning in November of 2006. I was got up on a Friday morning. I went to my laptop with a cup of coffee, opened it up because that's how I get my news. And I was looking through my news, and on the front page of every single headline was about this pastor who had fallen from grace in Colorado Springs, at New Life Church. And I sat there that day, and I'd heard this story played out in front of me a dozen times. Nothing was new about the story, except I sat there and wept, and I don't know why. I sat there and wept over this story, this, this thing in front of me, this news, this, I cried over it. And I found myself on a Friday morning, my day off, waking up my wife, Pam, and I said, Pam, do you, uh, something's going on. Something's happening. So I talked to church planters about that story. I said, listen, don't ever go serve a church. Don't ever go to a city. Don't ever even think about planting something. If you've not first sat and wept over the place you're going to, if God's not broken your heart over the city, don't ever go there. Don't, don't disgrace the city by starting a ministry that you don't weep over the city if you're not weeping over the city, if you're not brokenhearted by what's happening in your city today, if you're not disturbed greatly about what the, how people's lives are being wrecked right now by sin and deception, if it doesn't bother you at all, please don't go there. And this is, this is the first part of this story that I think we read past this and we lose, our, our, we lose part of the story if we don't pay attention here. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. Isaiah wept over the nation of Israel. The prophets cried. They wept when they saw how Israel was being wrecked. But here we are with Nehemiah crying and weeping over the city. And this is what he says: I sat down and wept. And for some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. So the, your, your heart first gets broken. And then you begin to intercede. And that's when you know you're called there. Why am I saying that? Because I think a lot of times the reason pastors quit is because they were never supposed to start. That's the truth. And I'm going to be very candid with you in here tonight, okay? One of the reasons a lot of church planters fail is not because they didn't have enough money or enough things, it's because they weren't supposed to go. And a lot of times, so I'm not going to sugarcoat this and say that every pastor who has a moral failure or every pastor who burns out or every pastor that's not successful is some trick of the enemy. No, sometimes it's just Disobedience. You should have never gone. And so how do you know if you should go? That's a good question, right? How do you know if you should go? Are you brokenhearted over your city? Have you fasted and prayed and mourned and wept over the place? Because if you have not, you will quit. You're not going to stay there long term. You You have no chance of longevity in a place that you're not sobbing over. You're not crying about it. See, that day on that Friday morning, the Lord broke my heart for a church that I had never attended, for a congregation that I had never met, for a city that I had only driven through a few times on my way up to the mountains for vacation. I didn't know anyone here, but my heart, something wrecked me inside. And why am I saying that? Because if I had not had that moment, I would have quit. I can tell you a hundred times in the last nine years, (laughs) 73 of them have been this year. (laughs) <laughs> that's not true. About 40 of them, but no, that's it. <laughs> but listen, I, I've wanted to quit. I've wanted to quit. I've been close to burning out. I, I, I've, been, I've, I've wanted to walk away. Absolutely. And any pastor that tells you they've never even thought about it, they're not being truthful to you. Or they're not paying attention to their emotions. Maybe they just have learned to not pay, be self-aware enough to even pay attention to what's going on in their heart. But listen, all of us are susceptible So let me ask a question today, what causes leaders to not be faithful and to quit? What causes us to quit? What causes us to shrink back and not finish the assignment that God has for us? These are the questions I want to explore with you tonight, and my goal at the end of the next 20 minutes or so is to show you that Nehemiah faced three very clear attacks that are still facing all of us as leaders right now. And I believe the first, like the biggest part of winning the fight against our enemy is to know what he's, what he's up to. If you, if you can be clear about the temptation, if you're clear about what he's trying to do, most believers can overcome it. But What happens in most leaders' lives is we get deceived along the way. We, we don't really understand what's happening. And we look up one day and we're in the pit where the lions are about to devour us. We have no idea how we even got there. So we know the story, Nehemiah had never lived in Jerusalem. Nehemiah was born in captivity. Nehemiah was born a slave. And he overheard this conversation about his hometown. Let me ask another question. How many of you are pastoring in a city that you were not born in and didn't grow up in? Would you raise your hand if you're pastoring right now in a city that you, didn't, you weren't born there and you didn't really grow up there but you're pastoring there? See, about a, a third of you. Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem. Nehemiah didn't know anything about the city except that it was a mess, it was a wreck. And so he he takes this huge move, this bold move, and goes to the king, this evil pagan king who had no, this king could have cared less if Jerusalem ever prospered spiritually. What he wanted was Jerusalem to be an outpost, a trading place. He wanted Jerusalem to regain its economy. He had ulterior motives by sending Nehemiah back to this city he, wasn't, he didn't care if the people's hearts ever came back to their God, Yahweh. He wanted the place to look presentable again for the economy to start producing money so that he could get taxes and he could get produce and goods and product and people back from a once prosperous city. So this king had very bad motives, but he looked at Nehemiah and said, go back to that city and rebuild it. Rebuild the walls, and here is, uh, here's a little pass to get through the territories unscathed. And here's another little piece of paper here with my mark on it. You can get all the lumber, all the timber, all the products, all the people that you need to go back and rebuild the city. And he takes off. And he arrives there a complete stranger. The only thing he has in his hands is a couple of signed pieces of paper from a king telling him he could do whatever he wanted. But the people there were very suspicious because this guy was an outsider. This guy had never lived here. This guy wasn't here when the thing was burned down. Now some of you have been called into a church and you weren't there when all the bad stuff happened, but you were called to go fix it. You can find yourself in Nehemiah's story really quickly right now. A group of people looking at you like you're the outsider, you're the suspicious outsider, that they don't trust you, they don't know you. So think about Nehemiah. Zero relationships, zero leadership trust, No idea what he was about to face. He did not know the city. He had never been there. And he gets called to this place. And these people aren't nice. He's there to help them, and they don't believe it. Can anyone please be a witness in the room today? (laughs) Every pastor in the room knows what I'm talking about. I'm here to help. I'm here to help you. But nothing was going Nehemiah's way. But he begins the work. To Nehemiah's credit, he starts the work. Can I tell you the greatest, I believe, the greatest, the greatest miracle, the greatest miracle that happens in any church when it's broken and messy and burned to the ground, the greatest miracle is when somebody has the audacity to start believing again. Listen, let me tell you what happened at New Life Church. We just sang a song that nobody else knows the power of that song except for those of us who were here. On a night, after two of our teenagers were killed about 50 yards away from here, and we cleaned up blood in that hallway right there, go outside that door and take a right, that place was a war zone. But on a Wednesday night, a group of us, a little small band of 6,000 or so people gathered in that auditorium, and we began to sing that song, "Overcome." And suddenly, I saw what Nehemiah must have seen. I saw a group of people who were willing to go back to work. Listen, this is the greatest miracle that happens. Just when a group of people will have some ability to hope again, to dream again. Uh, Mike just said it. Michael Cowling just said it. That we all have in us this ability to dream. And God gives us these plans and visions. But the problem is, very few people ever start working and the church is full of dreamers who don't know how to work. And Nehemiah said, not only do I have a plan, a vision, and a dream, but I know how to get this thing going. And Nehemiah, to his credit, organized and started removing the rubble from the gates. Cleaning up the mess, cleaning up the trash, making changes. Just let's start moving forward. Let's get the wheelbarrows out. Let's get these things going. Let's just start the work and see what God might do among us if we would start working And many of us are waiting on the move of God in our church, but God's waiting on many of us just to start doing something. Just start cleaning up the mess. Just just stop. Listen, leave this conference and go back and stop three things that are just wasting your time, all right? That's good work. If you don't know what new thing to do, I always say then stop three things you shouldn't be doing. And then you'll find yourself with the ability to do some new things with the team that you have instead of burning them out by doing a whole bunch of new things on top of the old things that are not working. And Nehemiah said, listen, we don't know what's going to happen here. I don't know how to rebuild the city, but we're going to start cleaning up the mess. So I want to to give you three things tonight that the enemy has been using since the days of Nehemiah to discourage and entrap and ensnare leaders, all right? Here's the first one. The first one is discouragement. I want to show this to you. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17. So the work has started. Nehemiah has started the work. And then I said to them, verse 17, You see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, Let us start. Let's do it. Listen, sometimes we have to, I'm surprised about how often I have to remind people about what we're doing around here. As leaders, we have to constantly remind people about what we're, what are we doing? You know, so we make it very simple around here at New Life. We exist to make disciples. That's it. We're, We're here to make disciples. Disciple people. Make disciples. Go make disciples. That's the last thing Jesus told us to do. Go make disciples. So that's what we do. So constantly we're having to remind our our staff, remind our volunteers, remind our church, we're here to make disciples. We're here to make disciples. We're here to make disciples. Let's start the long journey. Let's start the long journey of making disciples. And so Nehemiah says to the people, we're here to rebuild the wall. Let's start doing it. And guess what the people did? They started doing it. They started rebuilding the wall. Listen to this, verse 13, verse 19. But when Sandballot the Horonite, which by the way, if you have that name right away, you're going to have a really bad attitude the rest of your life. <laughs> if you've been called that since second grade, no wonder this guy's a problem. Sandballot the Horonite. <laughs> Tobiah, the Ammonite. And, and Geshem, the Arab, they heard about it. They mocked and they ridiculed us. Listen, the moment you began to do any good work, you're going to get mocking and resistance. And it says, and this is what they said, what are you doing? Here's the question they had, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Why are you wasting your time? You're wasting a lot of time. You know this is going to take a long time. Making disciples takes 30 years, 20, 30 years. Why are you doing that? Isn't there an easier way? He says, why are you doing this? And they asked, and they said, are you rebelling against the king? Now, he had just told them that he had come here with orders from the king to rebuild the wall but right away a group of people tried to discourage him so i want to tell you tonight about um the power of words and what it does to the leader's soul i'm very concerned right now that a lot of us as leaders that our souls are damaged and i i, I wrote this book and this is not a plug for my book but i wrote the book based on proverbs 12 verse 18 and i'll just read you the first part of this It says reckless words pierce like the sword And the rest of that says, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise bring healing. Here's what I've found in 20-plus years of pastoring. I've found that my heart gets damaged over time because of reckless words that people give to me. And if I don't pay attention to the condition of my soul, if I don't pay attention to that, I'll look up one day and I'll be a cynic. I'll be angry. I'll be uh, withdrawn from people. The very thing that God called me into, to be hopeful, to be con- close to people, I'll find myself doing the exact opposite, withdrawing from people, being cynical of people, mistrusting of people. So i found that there really are two types of criticism, will you'll, you'll know these right away. There are two types of criticism, two types that are harmful to our souls, souls as leaders. Number one, it's fair criticism at the wrong time. Now we can all learn from healthy criticism, right? But I don't know about you, but I am really tired of being told as I walk off the stage after preaching my guts out that it was 2 Corinthians, not 1 Corinthians. (laughs) First of all, I had it written down properly in my notes. I studied the passage. I know Paul wrote two letters. I know where Corinth is. I know every meter and rhyme and poem of the book. I understand Corinthians. I just misspoke it. And what happens is you preach your heart out, and some know-it-all, smarty pants wants to point out something to you that was not exactly right. And what, what does that do for us? You see, what happens is we—what happens is when we have emptied ourselves—is when we're the most vulnerable to these kinds of criticisms. I'm not so thin-skinned. Listen, I'm not, I don't walk around thin-skinned that I can't be corrected. If somebody pointed it out to me, you know, like if I mispronounced a Greek word, which I'm prone to do, uh, or I, or I mispronounced some name because I, don't, I didn't live there in those times and I named my kids that, so I'm, I'm prone <laughs> to mispronouncing things. But I studied, I know, but what happens, your soul is empty. Here's what happens, your soul is emptied. You just preached your heart out. You just called people out of hell into heaven. You just called the, the prodigal home. You just encouraged the saints. You just wrestled with the cynics. You just did all of that on the stage, and suddenly you're in, emptied out, and somebody who thinks they're doing you a favor points out how your sermon was a 9 out of 10, but it could have been a 10 if you'd only gotten that right. <laughs> I just got to tell me one time, this is, a, this is one of my favorites. He walked up to me, and this is the passive-aggressive church member that I know they all go here because I know they don't go to your church because we have all of them here. He said to me, he goes, Pastor Brady, I can really tell you're studying more. I looked at him and I said, not really. I'm pretty much mailing it in every Sunday. Thank God for SermonCentral.com or we'd be up the creek without a sermon. (laughs) Of which I am a contributor, by the way. Fair criticism at the wrong time. It's just bad timing. Here's another one. Unfair criticism anytime. Now listen, I'm going to say this to you, and I'm, I'm not trying to be funny with this. Some of you walked in really damaged because... We don't. We. I know what you're saying to yourself. The pastor Brady, should we put on our big boy pants and just be overcome that? Can't we just, you know, can't we just overcome? Why does that bother me? Because we're human beings. And at this conference, if we're going to get one thing right, we're going to get our humanity correct. At this conference, we have to be aware. Do you know why a lot of these pastors that you know and admire are resigning right now? Because they did not know how to handle healthy. Emotions. They didn't know how to understand how to wrestle these things to the ground. They would get these criticisms, and they did not know how to manage it. They didn't know how to give it away. They didn't know how to process it. So their hearts get damaged over time. They look up. And it's the same same thing that happens, and I'm a heart patient. I'm 49 years, I'm a congenital heart patient. So if there's one thing I know, it's heart disease, all right? What happens to the heart is over time, the more your heart is damaged, the more scar tissue that builds up around it. And that scar tissue is is, is your heart's way of preventing it from ever being hurt again. But at the same time, that scar tissue is damaging the ability of the heart to function. So your heart gets damaged through some kind of trauma. And so your heart says, Hey, don't let that happen again. So scar tissue gets built up. But what happens is your heart says, Hey, I need that muscle to work. I need that muscle to contract, but it's got scar tissue on it. And so over time, the doctors have to go in and remove the scar tissue, so that the heart can function. And this is what happens in the lives of leaders. We get these attacks. We get these little daggers. We get these little emails, these blogs, these social media posts that attack our hearts, and we look up 20 years later, and we got this scar tissue all over our heart, and we don't know why we're not functioning. It's because we never did the reparative work of dealing with these wounds. You have to deal with them. And here's what I do. I have, a, I have a group I'm so grateful for the transparency and vulnerability we have on our pastoral team. We're not, we don't walk around like supermen around here or superwomen. We, we have discovered that there's healthy balance to preaching and then being ministered to. And there's, this, there's a conversation we have on Tuesday that's so helpful to me that, that I hope you build into your schedule. It's, it's a meeting where I can sit in front of people that know what it feels like to preach. It's a preaching team. They know what it feels like to preach. They know the emotions that come out of your body. They know the physical uh, things that happen in your body after you preach. They know what it feels like to pray for a mother that's just lost their son to suicide. They know what it feels like to preach the sermon and be with the family. They know all those things. And so we sit with each other and say, listen, how are we doing? How's your soul and we talk, and if there's, if, if I, and it's a small group, so it's not a large group of people, it's a small group of people, where we have these conversations regularly about what's happening in our soul so that 20 years from now, we don't have all this massive amount of scar tissue built up around us so that we cannot function as human beings. Right. Nehemiah knew right away that if he didn't deal with this discouragement, that he would quit. People are always going to remind you why you shouldn't do things. And they mean well. Some of them mean well, some of them don't. Some people are trying to hurt you. Those people are evil. But I think those people are fewer than you think. Most people think they're doing you a favor by correcting you, they just don't know the damage that's doing to your soul at the time that they give you the correction. They just don't understand. And until you've preached, I think every critic in your church needs to preach multiple services on a weekend. (laughs) And then answer all the emails on Monday and I guarantee you'll never get any smack out of them again. <laughs> They'll be your best fan. They'll be your biggest fan. All right, here's the second thing so, discouragement. Disparagement. The second thing is uh, the first one was disparagement. The second one is discouragement. When Samuel, Tobiah, the Arab, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. And meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. And there's so much rubble that we can't rebuild the wall. So right away, the work got difficult. This is a big, this is a big assignment. Some of you have been to Jerusalem, and you can imagine getting there, and the whole thing is built with rocks, and it's just piled up everywhere. It says, we're not making any progress, we can't do this. Also, verse 11, also our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. And then the Jews who lived near them came, and listen to this, they told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. So the first, the first assignment is to disparage you to call into question your character. And then the enemy wants to come to discourage you. And oftentimes, it will be a repetitive, repetitive, repetitive comment. 10 times over, they'll tell you the same thing. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that most of us have built-in insecurities? Now, if you, if you, if you do, if, if you don't believe that, you're not going to raise your hand anyway. But for the rest of us, who know that what I just said was absolutely true, would you please raise your hand that we have these built-in insecurities? And the rest of you, you'll dawn on you at some point in your life, all right? (laughs) But all of us have these built-in insecurities, these built-in places that the enemy knows that we're vulnerable, these places where we feel weak, where we feel ill-prepared, where we feel that we're not going to live up to what people expect of us. I was... um, I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle right now of turning 50 years old. This is my jubilee year, believe it or not. So I turned 50 in January, and I, uh, I realized that at 50, that I can't do what I used to do at 40. And I sure can't do what I used to do at 30. And at 50 years old, I'm making some pretty sizable, significant changes, just about what I say yes to. And I, uh, I wrote down back in January, my wife looked at me and said, Brady, you're doing way too much. Now, I, just, I wrote a book called Addicted to Busy primarily to hold myself accountable. Pam not only helped me write it, she reads it all the time and repeats it back to me. <laughs> <laughs> so she said to me, She said, Brady, you can't do everything you're doing. So she said, I want you to, she said, I'll never forget it. She said, January this year, she said, I want you to sit down today and I want you to write down the things that you are leading and doing at the church that you're responsible for, meetings, events, regularly scheduled things that you are primarily responsible to do. And I stopped at 21. 21 things that I am primarily, regularly called upon to do. And I realized at 21, I could have kept going. And these were significant things. And I realized I can't do this. Can't do it. Can't keep going like that, which began a great journey for all of us to say, okay, that's my fault. First of all, I had to confess to my team that was my fault for doing that to myself and for doing that to my team. You know what that does to your team, by the way? And I, I did this when I was a pastor of a 50-member church in West Texas, and I'm doing it now as a member you know, for a big church out here in Colorado. In fact, I tell people all the time that small church pastors have more pressure on them to do more than large church pastors. They really do. You don't have any team. I had a part-time, I had a part-time, she wasn't even an administrative assistant. She was a secretary, because she couldn't type. And, <laughs> and she didn't know how to work any electronics, and yet, but that's all we could afford. So she truly was a very bad secretary <laughs> and a very sweet lady. But we were so poor in this church that I pastored, that was my staff. That was it. And we hired, uh, there was a sweet couple that she was 70 years old, and she made us breakfast burritos every Thursday, and we paid her $50 a week to clean the entire church, and we paid her husband $50 a week to mow the yard. That was my staff. So staff meetings was on Thursday morning (laughs) with a secretary that couldn't type, with some unbelievable homemade breakfast burritos, (laughs) and the most well-groomed lawn of any church in Herford, Texas but that was it. Listen, what's discouraging most of us is looking at the list that we have of things that we have to do and realizing that we can't do it. These inbuilt insecurities that we have that you're not going to live up, that you can't do everything, you can't measure up to people's expectations. So here I was as a young pastor in Herford, Texas, feeling that, and I went to a pastor's meeting like this. It was a large, like several hundred people, And I I happened to sit at a table like this with this pastor, and he looked at me and he said, Pastor Brady, he said, how old are you? And I said, I'm 31. He said, have you ever been a senior pastor before? I said, no. I I told him about my church. He said, well, Pastor Brady, you're not asking me for this advice, but I'm going to give you some advice. Now this was 20 years ago. January of this year, this man's words came ringing back to me. As I looked at my list of 21 things and none of them were bad things. They're all good things, godly things, awesome things, kingdom things. All the buzzwords that you would use, awesome, I'm needed, I'm necessary to the organization, right? All those insecurities that I'm feeling of needing to be needed, of desiring to be a part, of making sure that I had value, This old man looked at me and the old pastor, he'd been pastoring a long time, he was in semi-retirement, he was filling the pulpit for a church that didn't have a pastor and he was kind of doing it on Sunday and that was all he was doing. He said to me, he said, Brady, be careful because most pastors drown under the weight of their people's love and expectations. That's where they drown. He said, they'll disparage your character, they will, there'll be criticisms and attacks but a lot of times you're going to be discouraged that you cannot meet all the expectations that people have of you. And you will literally find yourself drowning under the weight of people's expectations that they have of you. And here I am in January looking at this list of 21 things and growing, and I'm realizing this guy was such a prophet to me. Why didn't I listen to him? Why am I so discouraged? Because these insecurities that we have of needing to be needed And Nehemiah realized that if he didn't overcome this discouragement, he would quit. I want you to listen to this last thing, this last thing. So if the enemy can't disparage your character, if he can't discourage you, then he'll do the next thing, he'll distract you. Look at this story, Nehemiah chapter 6. The work is almost done here. Imagine this. Imagine going to this place that I've just described and realizing that the work is almost done. And yet there's one more attack that the enemy had Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 1, it says, When the word came to Sambalot, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates. And I realized this the work is almost done. They have one little thing left to do hang the doors. And yet the enemy is still not finished with him. The enemy still wants him to quit because guess what? You can rebuild all the walls you want, but if you don't close the door, the enemy still gets in. This is what they knew about fortresses. They understood walled cities. These were men who had attacked cities before. They didn't care if the wall, that, that did present a military problem to have walls rebuilt, but if those gates ever got hung, there was a problem. There was one last thing, a very important thing left to be done, and the enemy had one more thing to come against Nehemiah with. He says, Sambalite and Geshem sent me this message. Hey, come. Let's meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. And so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project. I'm going to stop here just for a moment. If I ask you What is your primary assignment? What is it in your life that is absolutely non-negotiable to your assignment? Could you answer that? Could you tell me clearly, definitively, what you're called to do? Because if you don't know what you're called to do, you will do a lot of things that are not needed from you. Now listen, this is why I'm telling you some very personal things. I'm looking at my list of 21 things and it realized I am not called to do all of those things. I have made that list up on my own. Not all of it. Some of it I'm still doing. My goal is to get that list into single digits really quickly. And I'm distracted. And I was distracted by busyness. If the enemy can't trip you up with sin, he'll drive you over the cliff of busyness. I want you to please please hear me at what I just said, okay? If the enemy cannot trip you up with some kind of hidden personal sin, then he will drive you over the cliff of busyness, and he will cheer for you as you drive over the cliff doing your busy work at church. You better know what you're called to do, and nothing more and nothing less, because if you can't answer that question, then you will look up one day and you'll have a list like I did, and you'll realize that you're headed for a bad place because you're distracted. And Nehemiah had this moment of clarity and wisdom. I have one more thing to do. I have to hang these gates. I don't have time to go to that meeting. Are you seeing the 21st century play out in front of us here? He had one thing to do. Don't go to that meeting. They want to harm you. And it says, Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Look at verse 4. Four times they sent me the same message. Now, I want you to remember what I just read. Ten times over they tried to discourage me. Four times over they're trying to distract us. The enemy is persistent in his, his attempt to trip us up. The enemy is persistent, persistent, persistent. Listen, this is not the first time I had a list of 21 things. Years ago, I went through the same process again. I had this long list of good things I was doing for God. And it cost me so much in my home and my family. And here I am again, almost 50 years old, with 21 things on my list. How did I get back there? Because the enemy knows where we're vulnerable. He knows where our insecurities lie, and he's persistent. He's persistent. He's persistent. He's going to add to your list. He's going to come tell you over and over again until he wears you out and makes you say yes to something that will kill you. And he says this, and each time I gave him the same answer. The reason I'm asking you this tonight, on this opening night, because I hope that by Thursday at lunch, That you can at least begin answering the question that I just asked you. What are you called to do? And where, what are your insecurities telling you to do as opposed to what God has assigned you to do? So, I'm gonna, this is the question, this is a big question that I hope keeps you up to about midnight tonight, then I hope you sleep really well, okay? But let me ask you this, all right? I'm about to give you some good coffee, dessert time conversation for tonight. This is what this conference is about, is starting conversations. Now, I'm going to help you answer this question. I'm not going to leave you here tonight without solutions to what I just said, okay? You know how many days it took for Jeremiah, I mean, uh, Nehemiah? Those Mayas, see, this is what, somebody's going to correct me after this, all right? <laughs> Pastor Brady, you know you got your first point wrong and that it's not Jeremiah, it's Nehemiah. I know, okay, I know. Uh, <laughs> I totally knew I blew the first point. I know it was disparagement. I said discouragement. I already know that. I'm already beating myself up. Please don't tell me. Please don't text me. Please don't come tell me after this. I'm tired already. I'm hanging on by a thread right now. (laughs) And I'm speaking about humanity. I'm messing my sermon up right in front of you for a really good reason, I think. Here's, so the question is this, what are you primarily called to versus what are your insecurities telling you to do? Because Nehemiah is somewhere along the way. We don't know anything about Nehemiah's family necessarily, not that much, if anything really, definitively. I don't know where Nehemiah learned how to go to a foreign place, a place that he had never lived, to tackle such a large assignment and to be so clear on his mission. Be so pointed on what God had called him to do. I'm trying to discover that as I read this text with you. But I do know this. Nehemiah finished in 52 days. 52 days. That's an amazing, that's an amazing engineering feat. The place was a mess. It was a pile of rubble. Now, I want to I say this to you today. I, I felt when I come in here tonight... I walked around, I actually walked back there because I just wanted to get a feel for what God was saying. And there's some of you here tonight, you're so close to finishing. You're so close. You just have a couple of gates to hang. Please, listen to me. This is a word for somebody tonight. You just have a couple of gates to hang. Don't quit now. Don't quit. You've rebuilt the wall. You've done so well. Please, please hear me. Please don't quit You just have one little thing left to do. And the enemy has come to you to distract you, to call you to these other things. Listen, be clear about your assignment. That's one of the things about the beautiful thing about getting older, I think, is that we do get clearer about our assignment, hopefully. As a young man, young men and women tend to do a lot of things to prove themselves, prove their worth. And that's built on a lot of insecurities. Maybe you had a, a place, maybe you grew up in a house where performance was, was something that you know, you were taught and you were taught to perform, perform, perform for love. Love always was costly. You didn't. Love was never free. Love always cost something. So you learned how to earn adoration. You learned how to earn love. Maybe you grew up in that house. I don't know about Nehemiah, but I grew up in a home. My dad every day as he walked out of my house told me, Brady, I love you. And ready, you're smart enough to do anything you want. And I was foolish enough to believe that. And I'm grateful. And I want to say this to you tonight. The Lord loves you. I love my favorite part of that video from One Child Matters. was Lionel saying, he's praying on his bed. It's the second time I've seen that video. And both times, it's just so remarkable to hear that little boy say, Lord, I know you hear me. And I know you love me make me a pilot. So some of you that are so close. And I want you to know this tonight. The Lord hears you. And the Lord loves you. And the last thing tonight, I was five minutes before the service. I walked up to my office to to grab my my readers. Because I can't see my, you know, I can't read, you know. And um I am, I, um, this was, these were on my, these were on my desk. Abram, Callie, they just went through the volunteer process here. They went through the training to be volunteers. And tonight, their badges were on my desk. My 17-year-old, my 15-year-old. I looked at them and went, thank God, my kids are wanting to serve in the church. And there they are. There's proof. I'm looking at them. And they wanted to do it on their own. They chose that. I didn't tell them they had to do that. They came to me and said, Dad, we want to volunteer, so what do we do? And I said, well, you got to go do all these things. And they said, okay. They did say, Dad, do we have to go to the new members class? We've been here like nine years, and we listen to it every day from (laughs) you. So I did exempt them from the new members class (laughs) because I can. (laughs) I'm powerful like that. (laughs) Let me say this to you one more time. I know I'm going long, but I don't really care about that too much right now. But... um, I, I looked at this on my desk tonight, and I am i was so grateful. I said, Lord, I know there's things I can be discouraged about right now, and but I'm so grateful that at the end of the day, you've been faithful to my family. And I want to pray for some of you tonight that you walked in tonight with prodigals, and I was just thinking about you tonight, that... I'm not saying that to make you feel bad if your kids are not serving in the church. I'm holding these badges up tonight to remind you that the Lord can call your kids into ministry with you. They will. The Lord will call your kids to serve alongside you. And even if they're prodigals right now, you're looking at a guy that was the prodigal of all prodigals. I'm standing here tonight. I should not be up here. I was the prodigal. I was everything in Luke 15 and more of that story. And I came to my senses one day and I started walking back toward a home and I discovered a God that was not mad at me but was actually running out to meet me. And your kids are going to have that same revelation. i pray that over you tonight. If you walk in here tonight with a heavy heart about your kids, I want to speak life over your children today. And if you have little tinies right now, if you have little babies running around, I want you to look at your kids every single day and tell them the Lord loves you and the Lord hears you and the Lord has a purpose for your life. Somebody said that to little Lionel, and he believed it, didn't he? So I want to pray tonight that I'm finished. I want, I want you tonight, tonight to, um, if I'm speaking to you tonight, I want you to respond to me. Because we're, we're not, uh, we're, ta- we're, you know, we're showing this live online, but the, the uh, camera is not on you. Okay, so you can respond, and nobody's going to know how you responded. But I want to ask you a question tonight. How many of you tonight, and this is going to be a moment of vulnerability. I've been pretty vulnerable with you right now, so I want you to ask you to, if we're going to have a dialogue these next three days, it's got to start tonight, okay? I was very vulnerable to you in this message, and I rambled and messed up my points, and very vulnerable. How many of you are discouraged tonight? Will you just raise your hand and just admit it? I'm just, I'm a bit discouraged. Just lift your hand up. I really appreciate you, you putting your hand up like that. That takes courage, and it takes wrestling your insecurities to the ground. How many of you know tonight that you're distracted? You're just distracted. I'm all over the map, Pastor Brady. I got more things on my list to do than I can do. I don't know what I'm really supposed to do. Would you just raise your hand tonight? I'm distracted. I'm just distracted, Pastor Brady. And how many of you would raise your hand tonight and say, Pastor Brady, my heart has scar tissue on it because I've been disparaged. I've been attacked. My heart, I'm, I'm, something has happened in my heart that's not healthy for me. I have been attacked, fairly or unfairly, I've been attacked, and it's not done something good in my heart, and I want to be free from that tonight. Would you lift your hand if, if, that's you, if your heart's a bit heavy tonight with some, some wounds maybe? And then tonight I want to, one more prayer is, how many of you are here tonight, and you, you are, have a prodigal that you want to come home? Now, this is going to take a bit of vulnerability, but would you raise your hand with me? I want to know who I'm praying for. I have a kid. He's a prodigal. She's a prodigal. But I'm praying that they would come to the house. They would have come to their senses and turn and come toward home. So I'm going to pray right now. If you raise your hand about any of those things, would you just stand with me right now? If you raised, any of your hands were raised... Just stand with me where you are. That's most of the room tonight. And I'm grateful that we can start off this conference by being really personal and human with one another. A lot of times, you know, I go to conferences and I hear these superstar stories from superstar people and I wonder if they they ever really... What's going on? And I suspect that most of us are asking these questions. Lord... Where where am I in your story? The Lord's come tonight to meet with every one of you. Now, the rest of you, would you stand around these people? Would you stand around those who are standing? And would you put your hands on their shoulder if that's okay? If you know them well enough, hug them or whatever. But if you don't know them well enough, just point at them maybe. If they look like a hugger, then put your hand on their shoulder, all right? Let's pray together. We're, the, we're, we're sons and daughters in this room. We are the people of God gathered in this room tonight to pray together. So let's pray, let's pray for one another right now. Would you just pray right now? I'm not going gonna, gonna to let you start the prayers. Start praying right now over the people that you're around. Just start praying for them. You don't have to know everything that's going on in their lives. Just start praying for them. And let the Spirit lead you right now as a how to pray. Father in heaven, we humbly come before you, empty-handed but alive, captured by the idea of your grace for us, fascinated that you would love us, fascinated that you had called us, overwhelmed by your care for us. So, Father, tonight I pray in the matchless name of Jesus right now around the room that the Holy Spirit would descend upon us like a dove and that every one of us in this room would hear, well done, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. Now, Father, I pray tonight for those who are discouraged that you would Put courage in them in these days that we have together. Tonight, I pray you would put courage into them. Courage, Lord. For those of us who are distracted, I pray tonight for clarity, for clear vision, clear wisdom. Lord, define our purpose to us. Show us who we are, that we may not look to the right or look to the left, that we put our hand to the plow, that we would go straight ahead. Father, tonight for those who are, our hearts have been attacked, our hearts have been broken, Father, I pray for the bomb of healing right now on our hearts. Make us fully alive as human beings once again. Heal us, O oh Lord. And Father, tonight I pray for the prodigals to come home around the room. I pray tonight for every son and every daughter that was lifted up, that you, O oh Lord, would speak to them. And, and Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, they would come to their senses. And tonight, at this hour, at this moment that we're praying, that they would begin walking back toward you and discover a God that's not mad at them, that loves them and cares for them and is welcoming them home. The Father, we bless, we bless the name of the Lord. And in Jesus' name we pray.